Let us pray together. Loving God, on this day of resurrection, we come that we may hear good news, that we may hear news of love, that you may enter us in new ways, in new places, transforming us, renewing us, and bringing us closer to you. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In preparing to speak with you this morning, I found myself wondering why it is we have such big crowds on Easter and Christmas. It should seem obvious, it's something we don't question very often, but I found myself wondering about it. Perhaps many of you are here because you know that we have a fantastic music ministry and you knew that you would be treated to some wonderful, inspiring, soaring music this morning. Or it may be because you haven't been in church for a long time and you knew Easter Sunday might be a good time to come inside. It could be because this is your church and you're here most Sundays, so why should this Sunday be any different? It might be because you heard we are going to have a bigger spread than usual for breakfast and you are hungry, maybe hungry for more than just cinnamon rolls. Or perhaps you're new to the neighborhood and passing by and want to check out what this big imposing brick building is all about. Or maybe you're just what we affectionately refer to as C&E people, Christmas and Easter. There's no shame in that, particularly in this day and age. It feels good to mark these times of year. It's something about our nature that we mark beginnings and endings. So when we come together at Christmas, we celebrate this life as it came into the world, what we say was God coming in the form of a baby and living among us. And then when we come to Holy Week, we remember the end of that earthly life and the beginning of something new. Whatever brought you in the door this morning, I am glad you are here. It is good to be together. But I find myself asking, particularly in this day and age, when stepping inside a church is so much more of a choice than a societal expectation, what are the reasons we come here? A few years ago, a friend of mine who is an Episcopal priest, her wife was walking along with their young grade school child who turned up and said, Mom, what happened to that guy who died in church? Her mom was racking her brain. That guy who died in church, she tried to give herself some space to think. Yeah. She's trying to remember if there had been some medical emergency that had happened that she didn't remember. That guy who died in church. You know, Jesus. Oh, right. 
And so I like to think that some of us come because we want to know what happened because this story we hear from the Gospels still is a little strange to our 21st century ears. We still have trouble making sense what it's all about. And yet it has become the bedrock of the Christian faith for nearly two millennia. And I think it's important when church is a choice that we dig into it just a little bit to see if it has any relevance for our lives. I believe that the resurrection is an important piece of this faith, and it's important that each one of us make sense of it for ourselves. For me, the message is very simple, that love triumphs over hate. And with it come the corollaries, life triumphs over death, hope triumphs over despair, goodness triumphs over evil. This may seem like an obvious message. It may seem like an outdated message. You may be saying, yes, of course, that's what it's all about. Could I get some new insight, please? But I think it's important to remember this idea that love triumphs over hate, particularly when we live in a world that too often seems like Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday at least the way that our 24-7 news cycle reports it. They have discovered that they sell a lot more, that profits go much further if they sell the bad news to us, the things that worry us and scare us and frustrate us, that they peddle a lot more of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday than Easter Sunday. Does that ring true? Can I get an amen? Oh, good, good. Now, as expected, on Thursday and Friday evenings, we have smaller crowds. Substantial crowds, I'm glad to say, but smaller. And the reasons are understandable because most of us, when given a choice, would prefer not to show up for a sad farewell dinner, particularly one that ends so badly, with the guests kind of scurrying away in the darkness, with one of the people who allegedly was a friend and a disciple deciding that his teacher, that his guru, was worth more dead than alive, that he could sell him off to some hitmen for some loose change of silver. Or when that host of the dinner, Jesus, when his right-hand man, Peter, decides that it, it will save his own skin if he denies Jesus, not once, but three times. I understand why we might not show up for that kind of dinner. Or on Good Friday, I understand why a lot of us would stay away, because given the choice, we'd rather not watch or witness or remember an execution. Even though they happen in the world all around us all the time, in neighborhoods where gun violence soars, in our prison system, in the 28 war-torn countries around the world, we would rather not remember that. This year, we tried to do something different with Good Friday. We prepared a booklet of images from the 24-7 news cycle and tried to hold them up to the lens of the words that we say Jesus said on the cross. They were disturbing images, but they're images that we see all the time, sort of hermetically sealed away from us on the TV screen or the internet or in the newspaper. When Jesus says, God forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, we showed a picture of ISIS executioners. 
When Jesus forgives and accepts the criminals on his right and his left, we showed a picture of an empty jail cell and wondered aloud what Jesus' words mean for our work against mass incarceration. Or when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We showed an 11-year-old little black boy in front of a police line in Ferguson, Missouri, before gunshots were about to fire out yet again. Or for I am thirsty when Jesus is parched on the cross and offered sour vinegar only to prolong his thirst, we wondered what that means for the people of Flint, Michigan, or indeed people around the world for whom water is less and less of a right and more and more of a commodity. When Jesus said it is finished, we looked at a picture of the death chamber in Huntsville, Texas, and wondered if Jesus had been put away by the state in this day and age, what symbol might we put up on the altar? What symbol might we wear around our neck? I understand these are hard things to look at, but it is what we see all the time, and I believe it's even more important that we claim what the resurrection means for ourselves that love triumphs over hate, it even triumphs over death. It's the reason that this church stands here at all, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we even think about it or not, it's the undergirding reason for why any of us should come for this festival. And I don't wanna spend any time trying to prove the factuality of the resurrection because that's an argument that I'm not sure would be very helpful to this crowd. The idea of the resurrection is often too much for our highly rational, empirically driven, reasonably skeptical 21st century minds to grasp. It was, however, a compelling reason for the people in the first century. And the fact that it meant something to them and we keep retelling it gives me pause. The idea that your leader could suffer such an unbearable death and come out of the tomb three days later was something that compelled people forward. It's what compelled them to be resurrection people. You can argue that the disciples were actually 10 times stronger after the resurrection than before it. Their resolve increased, their understanding deepened, their enthusiasm for the movement took fire. And in response, a mighty empire persecuted them even more severely. And some have argued that the doctrine of the resurrection only became an issue the more that Christians were persecuted because it was such a compelling argument for the faith to the people at the time. And because they were being persecuted, it became a justice issue. You will not keep us down. You will not snuff us out. This is our testimony that Christ lives, that love reigns no matter what you try to do to it on the executioner's table. It's what inspired Peter and Paul to start spreading the message of a rabbi who said audacious things like, love your enemies, be kind to those who persecute you, who reiterated the prophets before him by preaching that our most important task is to love our neighbor, to take care of the least among us, the poor, the downtrodden, the prisoner, the hungry, the thirsty, the unclothed, the homeless. 
It's what inspired an early church leader, Stephen, to give testimony to the gospel of love, and the authorities started stoning him. And as that rain of rocks came down on him, he had both the tenderness and the strength to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's what caused a crazy hippie visionary like St. Francis to love all creatures, great and small, to kiss the leper and love him as God's own child. Here in the early days of the Puritan settlement of Boston, it's what propelled Anne Hutchinson to stand up to the power-drunk leaders of the Puritan theocracy and to cry out for religious freedom and say, now having seen the one who is invisible, I fear not what man can do unto me. It's what caused an evangelical in the slave force, William Wilberforce, to stand up and say that this has to be stopped. We can own people no longer. Even when people use the arguments of the Bible for slavery against him, he reiterated it over and over. It's what caused Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as the church was saying nothing around him, to the Nazi rise of power, to form a German resistance and actively fight, even giving his life for it. It was an Easter kind of mentality that was able to fight back fascism. It was what caused Dorothy Day to work among the poor and serve them. It's what caused Martin Luther King Jr. to hold us to our best ideals, both in Christianity and American citizenship. It's what caused the Archbishop of Recife in Brazil, Dom Eldar Camara, when faced with oppressive regional and national governments to say, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. I believe it's this resurrection mentality that propels our current pope to say some of the things he is saying about the environment, the poor, the dispossessed, and the demagogues he hears in the world. When we claim the resurrection as our own, I believe we make a choice that we will see the world in terms of possibility, that we will not have hate and division and oppression and broken systems have the last word, that we will keep working steadily forward so that love may reign because we know it and believe it deep in our souls that that is the most important thing. When I listen to the news these days, I wonder why we can't hear more of the Easter story, why we hear more of the Good Friday story, and what you and I need to do to change that. I believe it happens in our own relationships, in our own individual conversations, in the ways that we say, I stand up for the poor and the downtrodden. I stand up for love. I will not listen to a rhetoric of hate and let it rule me or my people. I also believe that none of us can do that alone, which is why I believe in communities like this one, where we retell the message, we retell the story, no matter how fantastic, no matter how much there may be a rational disconnect between the first century and the 21st, the ways that we support each other, love each other, and live together.
so that we may kick down the tombstones of the world and let the light of Christ's love keep shining forward. Amen.